Hello, hello, hello. Today, we're on our seventh podcast episode about the book of Revelation. And this is our fifth church out of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. This is the church of Sardis. We will be talking about how to tell if a church is spiritually dead or spiritually alive. We'll be talking about the significance of white garments in the book of Revelation. And finally, we'll be talking about the book of life. What is the book of life that's referenced in this letter? But first, I want to do a recap of what the heck is the book of Revelation, because it's been a minute. So this is kind of a reminder summary of the book as a whole. And major credit to the Bible Project podcast for a lot of this verbiage right here. So Revelation's genre is Second Temple Jewish Apocalyptic Literature. Other Jewish apocalypses exist from that same time period that we have access to and that historians and Bible nerds have studied that give us even more literary context for the genre. It was a well-known genre. People don't really write in this kind of apocalyptic nature anymore, but this genre was written by a lot of times Hebrew Bible nerds, Jewish people that studied Hebrew scriptures their whole lives, and they meditated on the storyline and on the symbols of the Hebrew Bible, and so a lot of those will show up in the apocalyptic literature that they write. And these writers, while meditating, praying, and um, thinking and uh, connecting all these Old Testament things, they would have encounters with God's presence. They would gain revelation from the Holy Spirit to give to God's people additional insight and wisdom, and that's what many believe has happened to John, the author of Revelation, or at least the person that most people think from Revelation. John was a Jewish Christian. He was a Christian Jew, however you want to say that. So his revelation is filled with Hebrew Bible wisdom and and meditation that he had done over the years. And it's also full of Jesus, who he believed is the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. So John begins with some messages about Jesus and what he wants to say to the seven churches. The number he chose, seven churches that he chose to write to, is a dead giveaway that this is actually meant for a wider audience or the church as a whole, the complete capital C church. So again, Bible Project gets major credit for that summary. Now, these churches, most of the seven churches are experiencing a lot of persecution at the time. They contained also a lot of Jewish people that had converted to Messianic Christianity, Jewish Christianity. They embraced Jesus as the Messiah while surrounding them in their cities were the rest of the Jewish community that hadn't embraced Jesus as the Messiah. So there was often tension there. Now, John, the author, includes references to a lot of things, a lot of symbols, a lot of metaphors like Satan as a dragon or Satan as a serpent, depending what word you want to interpret there. World leaders as beasts. Jesus as the foretold anointed one, of course. Um, Jesus as a sacrificial lamb. That's a huge metaphor in the book. Rome and possibly other corrupt governments as Babylon. And then there's this metaphor of a beautiful city, of a future Jerusalem, of heaven. I don't even know if that's a metaphor. (laughs) Maybe he's just actually saw literally that. But there's so many hyperlinks back to Hebrew scriptures tied together in this trippy tapestry from John's spiritual experiences, John's visions, in this well-known apocalyptic writing style. So let's read the letter to the church in Sardis from Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, 
These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. Remember, therefore, what you've received, what you've heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you did not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you won't know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me. Okay, listen to this part. A few people in this church in Sardis have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out that name of that person from the book of life, but I will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Whoever hears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is one of the few letters, I think one out of two out of the seven, that doesn't really have a compliment sandwich. It just goes straight to what is wrong. Jesus is saying, look, I know you guys have this reputation of being alive, but you're actually dead. You're a spiritually dead church. There's a few people there that are actually wearing the white garments. So how do you know if a church is spiritually dead? Well, according to this letter, there can be actions taken by a church that can look really good. There can be performative or busy work type motion going on, but the church is actually dead. They can have a reputation of being alive, but still be spiritually dead. So what we want to look for is, in a spiritual community, are there good-looking actions that are actually fruitless? Are there good-looking actions, but it's fruitless, busy work? In Isaiah 57, 12, God tells corrupt leaders in ancient Israel, I will expose your righteousness, quote-unquote, and your works, and they won't help you at all. Okay, so it's telling us in Isaiah, God actually sees the heart of our actions, not just the PR campaign that we can put on sometimes when we're trying to do well, trying to do right, trying to look like we're spiritually alive. Sardis doesn't seem to be going through persecution like the previous churches we've read about, nor did it get rebuked for like false teaching or heresy like we've heard in other letters. It was just spiritually unalive, nominally Christian only. It was a place that went through the external actions, but in a zombie-like way. Now, I may, of course, our context is mostly watching this video, the church in North America in this day and age. Well, we don't have much persecution compared to the church in other parts of the world. It makes me wonder if that's part of why many of our congregations struggle with this kind of spiritual zombiehood sometimes too. And obviously, there's other reasons that a, a church can be spiritually dead. It can be they love, like a group of people at that church may love their sin. That'll do it too. But in 2 Timothy 3, 5, Timothy talks about, or Paul talks about people who claim to be part of the faith, but have a form of godliness, but deny its power. They have a form of godliness, but deny its power. I wonder if this is the same principle that we see with these nominal Sardis Christians. Maybe there's no real power of God in it. Maybe they're going through the motions. Yet, there's still this handful of genuine Jesus followers who have stayed pure in their pursuit. They'll be counted as Christ's victors, Christ's conquerors. Now, why were these genuine 
followers of Jesus that wore the white garments unsoiled, that had stayed true to the faith, going to this dead church? Well, it's likely that in Sardis, there was only one church, only one Christian community. That's not the case today with most of us where we live that are listening to this podcast. We have the choice to go to healthy church community that is spiritually alive. So I want to encourage you to ask and just look and examine, is the community of Christians that I'm connecting myself with truly spiritually alive? Are they truly entering into the presence of God the way he has explained and taught us to? Are they practicing the presence? Are they growing in the gifts and in the fruit, like love and joy and peace and patience? Are they growing in making disciples? Are they winning people over to Christ? Are they caring for the poor and the orphan and the widow? Are they doing the things that we're supposed to be doing to grow in Christ? Or are we just showing up to church and going through these actions like in a ritualistic but zombie-like way? I want to encourage each of you to plug into a Christian community of believers that are actually doing the thing. They're alive. They're living the life. They're walking the walk. They're growing more like Jesus. That's what we want to look for. Okay, topic number two. These white garments seem important in this letter. Found elsewhere, like in Laodicea, the next one of the next letters, as well as in Sardis, and then also later in Revelation, like in 4 verse 4, in chapter 6 verse 11, in chapter 7 verse 14, and in chapter 19 verse 14. The gift from God of a white robe we learn throughout the book is clearly salvation. The white robe is salvation. It's a metaphor for being able to enter in to God's presence because he's, he's given us this clean, white, pure, holy garment. Okay. In ancient times, people wore white robes to weddings and to parties. So there's this constant wedding theme in the book of Revelation. Like you get this white robe, meaning you're invited to the marriage supper of the lamb, the future reconciliation of heaven and earth. The white, the pure, the holy, it's being found without wickedness to being found having not soiled these righteous robes, these clothes, like in Daniel. Okay. So the book of Daniel is, of course, very, very similar to the book of Revelation. And there's a lot of hyperlinks back to the book of Daniel. So in Daniel eleven thirty five and 12, 1, the day of the Lord is described and um, believers are being found as white and pure and holy or being found as doing wickedness. That's the dichotomy explained there. So not only do we get a crown when we overcome, like we've talked about in previous podcasts, which is linked to dying in a committed faith, right? Not abandoning the faith, even unto death. And um, we've seen that in previous letters. Not only do we get a shared spot of authority beside Jesus, what? Not only do we get the morning star, we get these pure garments, in Beale's amazing book called John's Use of the Old Testament in Revelation, as well as in Michael Heiser's podcast on Revelation, you see this concept laid out of this being part of a visual transformation, this white robe as part of this larger metamorphosis that we believers go to. We take place as members of the divine council alongside heavenly beings like angels. We get invited in to the divine council. We get to co-reign with Christ because we're co-heirs with Christ and God's faithful people are given white garments, thrones, they're enthroned, okay? We get enthroned in the future 
and they get crowns. We get crowns. This is the kind of blow your mind stuff of God welcoming us into his kingdom. It's not just that we get to be a fly on the wall in the kingdom of heaven. It's not just that we get to go to heaven, which is already amazing enough. It's that we're invited to rule with Christ. Now there's angels who get white garments as well, but not crowns. Okay, there's a sense in which humans get to rule and reign with Christ in a way that angels are not described as doing. They don't rule with Christ like we do in the future. Some other symbols of rulership that show up throughout Revelation are swords, keys, robes, rods, horns, and more. There's a ton of significance in these metaphorical outfits that we are outfitted in as faithful believers that show that we're called into a co-rulership with Christ himself. So again, what are these believer outfits telling us? They're telling us we get to be co-reigning in the future with Christ above all all the, the defeated powers of darkness and over all creation. It's crazy. <laughs> By the way, this letter mentions walking with God. Now, there's some prominent Hebrew Bible characters that are said to have walked with God. They are Enoch and Noah. They're basically thought to have entered the throne room. Like um, when you read about Noah walking with God or Enoch walking with God, it's a sense of this unique connection to God's presence in a way that not everyone else experienced at that time. So he's saying there are people in Sardis that are going to be that close and stay that close to Jesus. The metaphor of a necessary purified garment to enter the company of God is actually a very common metaphor all throughout scripture. It's salvation. It's righteousness that he gifts to us, that God gifts to us. It's often described as a garment and we're warned never to be found without it. Where We need what he offers us. We need what God offers us. A strange side factoid that I found out about Sardis as I was researching this part of Revelation. So I guess the city of Sardis kind of thought of itself as an indestructible city, unconquerable. But in 213 BC, Antiochus III did a sneak attack um, in the night and bragged that this city was captured like a thief in the night. Now, I know that was a popular term. Jesus used that term. The, The term was first found in the book of Job. Like a thief in the night is just a way of saying caught off guard, surprised. But I thought it was interesting because, um, this book says that, well, this letter says, let's read it. The letter to Sardis says, Remember, therefore, what you've received, hold fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. You won't know what time I will come to you. So it's probably just because it was a popular phrase, but it was an interesting factoid that they, the city actually ended up being conquered and overcome in this famous battle that was described as like a thief in the night. Okay, so we've talked about kind of what to look for in a church to see if it is spiritually alive or spiritually dead. And you kind of have to look past the surface to look into, is there real fruit? The way that God describes fruit in a community, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Is there discipleship? Are people coming closer to Jesus, apprenticing under Jesus? Is Jesus being glorified in that community and being reflected? And um, are people growing more like God? And we talked about the white garments, the significance of the salvation garment for the believer. Topic number three is the book of life. Okay, so the Sardis letter also includes this cool reference to something called the book of life. The faithful in Sardis 
are promised that their names will be written in this book of life. In Revelation 21, 27, which we'll get to later, we learn that it's the people who are allowed into the new Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the coming city. The book of life is mentioned also in Exodus 32, verse 32, Psalm 69, verse 28, Daniel 12, 1, Luke 10, verse 20, Philippians 4, verse 3, Hebrews 12, 23, and probably more. I stopped looking at that point. For instance, in the book of Daniel in 12, verse 1, the it says, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. It's talking about the end times, most people think. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. So this book of names is a popular concept. And it even the metaphor even worked for people who were not familiar with Hebrew scriptures, because if someone was reading this letter and maybe they're like a Gentile Christian that didn't have all that Hebrew Bible background, like the Jewish Christians would have, they still were in Sardis. And Sardis was the Western capital of the early Persian and Seleucid empires. I can never say that word right. Seleucid empires, which makes it likely to have a long history of keeping royal records, keeping records for the whole area, keeping books with names in it. Okay. And when Greco-Roman times hit, all these cities kept registries. So a book of names would include citizens. And if you were a criminal, your name would get blotted out or removed from the book. So it's the same concept. Are you part, are you citizen of heaven? So Revelation is basically a book that constantly encourages us to zoom out and think about eternity. Many of the churches referenced were suffering, persecution, and hardship, but there's a constant encouragement to remember that in the long run, we win. Okay. We get to be in God's presence. We get to be in the, the city of peace and um, light. And it's because Jesus is the sacrificial lamb that we get access to these things. We get this crown and this robe and this throne beside him and these incredible and unfathomable privileges and blessings, not because we've earned it, but because we've stayed faithful and endured to the end. Whatever whatever we may be walking through now is not the end. We're not at the end yet. So it's cool to look into the future and kind of see what the end is. We know God's goodness always has blessings in store for us. So we want to play the long game. We want to remember what we've been given in Christ and stay near God's presence. Don't let go of this great invitation to think about eternity and reigning with Christ, where every tear is gone, where his light permeates everything, to endure the hurt of the here and now when we have to, because we have this huge, unshakable hope, which is Jesus, our King. Jesus is uniquely our King and our Savior. Jesus is the spiritual entity that reigns above all other spiritual entities, all other beings that have ever existed and that ever will. He has preeminence and he is predominant. And he that's why when you get any sort of revelation, spiritual revelation of who Jesus is, that he is Yahweh in the flesh, that he is Lord of Lord, King of Kings, your response is often awe, wonder, worship, being humbled, being brought low, being fascinated, being um, wanting to... Um, experience this matchless love that is him. I've heard so many uh, testimonies lately of people encountering the presence of Jesus and him saying things to them like, I want you to know me. 
I want you to know me. I, I want us to know each other. He is a person. Jesus isn't a consciousness or a concept. Jesus is actually God, the person God, the second person in the triune God. I may be saying this a little bit technically incorrectly, but Jesus is a person, a being, a, a friend and a Lord and a savior. And it's a personal thing that you can connect with here and now. And that connects you to the future that God wants for you, which is the new Jerusalem, AKA the kingdom of heaven, finally reunited uh, with the earth. Right now, the earth is in a broken state, but we see in the book of revelation, the hope that believers in Jesus are being taught to put their eyes on, to set their eyes on as they walk through this life. And that's why Paul says, run your race and keep looking at that goal. Don't take your eyes off what you're doing and why and who you're serving and how amazing God is. Okay. So I hope that that's encouraging. I hope that you've gotten a chance to think about scripture in a new, interesting way. We'll be diving into the next letter next podcast. So I will see you guys then. God bless you.